Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here today with my really good friend, Nazak Nakaktar, who's a former Assistant Secretary for Industry and Analysis at the U.S. Department of Commerce, but she also had the function of being the Acting Undersecretary. Uh, What was the exact title, Nazak? The Undersecretary for? Uh, The Bureau of Industry and Security Handling Export Controls on Dual Use Items. While there, Nazak played a key role in shaping U.S. investment policy and addressing national security threats. She's the department lead on the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, something called CFIUS, which is a really important committee we're going to talk about. Nazak has led on topics such as American competitiveness, manufacturing, e-commerce, economic trends, and she's been a real innovator throughout her career. She's lived the American dream. She's someone I really admire. I think she's really smart and fun to be around, and you'll, you'll get that sense from this conversation. But I think she's one of the brightest minds in Washington, and I'm so glad that she took time to talk to us today. Nizak, thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. And um, it's always really important to talk about issues as they're evolving, right, as the government is trying to figure out you know, what it needs to do and, and, and evolves in terms of its thinking about economic competitiveness and trade and allies and non-allies. So thanks for having this conversation. It's really important. So Nazak, you live the American dream. You grew up in California. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to Washington. Yeah. So I was born in Iran. Uh, my parents are Iranian and my parents both got significant chunks of their education in America. My mom studied uh, medicine at Cornell. Uh, my dad did his residency in New England. We were always, the plan was to move to America, but then the Iranian revolution expedited everything. It's in that context that it's really incredible to see the fight for democracy now, when you've actually lived through a period where the government's overthrown, you have a period of anarchy, and you go from relative peace times to just bombings day and night and, and worried about sort of whether you're going to make it to the next day. It really just puts this, um, the fact that we have democracy and we have the ability to enjoy democracy into perspective. And it's, you remember to not take these things for granted. My dad, when we came to America um, and, and for permanently after the Iranian revolution, he never set foot back in Iran. Actually, none of us did. He never set foot back in Iran because he had really sworn his loyalty and allegiance to the United States. A couple of things that he learned or he taught me that were so important as I was in government service. And I finished my second, recently my second tour of duty in the U.S. government. Uh, 20 years ago, I was in the Commerce Department and I helped set up the China Non-Market Economy Office. You were a civil servant. Yes, civil servant. Very proud to be that. I, My husband was. We met each other at the Commerce Department. All our, our, of our good friends who still work over there. Really important, the functions of um, all federal agencies, including the Commerce Department. But just a couple of really like important points for those who are immigrants or who may not be immigrants, but really are, are, want to understand sort of the loyalty that all fabric of the United States has. The uh, 1994 
U.S.-Iran soccer competition. My dad was a big soccer fan. He asked me, who do you root for? And I said, Dad, you know I always root for the underdogs. And he said, he looked at me very sternly and said, you root for America because America gave you your home, your freedom, and your education. Oh, wow. Wow. That stuck with me. It was really profound. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And another thing he used to always tell me, because I used to say I was Iranian-American. People would say, where are you from? Iranian-American. My dad used to be very upset. And he said, say, you're American. You have to say you're American. And I didn't get it when I was young. And it wasn't until I was an adult and it wasn't until I was really served the government and this country through the government that I realized I am an American. I wake up every morning, everything I do, everything I live, eat and breathe is for this country. And so while my birthplace was Iran, I'm an American. And those are sort of the two major things that he instilled at me that really makes me so committed to every minute of every day, like you, Dan, fighting for this country and fighting for what's right. I want you to tell our listeners about you went to law school, but you also got a master's degree in economics. And I don't want to say you you kind of bootstrapped yourself through economics program. There's something I mean, you you kind of you have a story about getting in the economics program. Yes. Yeah. So my my parents were doctors and they wanted me to be a doctor. And my, my brother liked the study of medicine. And so he decided he was going to become a doctor, which made it so much harder for me to convince my parents. But finally, I, you know, I said, listen, I don't need a penny from you guys. I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to do this on my own. You know, did, did the loans myself, did all of that stuff. Um, but it was um, sort of my, my final period at UCLA, my undergrad, I had this wonderful teacher, um, Mary Yeager. She's John Lithgow's wife, the actor John Lithgow. Oh, wow. She was an economic historian. And it, it was just something that I just fell in love with, the, the history of the American economy, the engine of, of growth globally. So I, I went to law school in Syracuse, and I knew that they had a joint degree program. And so after the first year, I go to uh, the head of the econ department, Dr. Dukowski. Dr. Dukowski, I'm a law student. My name is Nazak. I'm a law student. I really want to get a master's in economics. So it's just like, let me join your program. And he looked at me, he goes, well, did you study economics in undergrad? And I said, no. And he goes, well, did you do any statistics or any core of those classes? And I pretty much answered no. And he just looked at me like, you silly girl from LA. I think I still have an LA accent. What in the world are you thinking? And you know, you have this sort of this thing in Hollywood that's ingrained in you when you grow up in California where you just don't take no for an answer. So I'm about to walk out of his office and I turn around and I said, I'll make a deal with you, Dr. Dukowski. And he kind of rolls his eyes and looks at me. And I said, you give me your hardest class. And if I do well, will you let me into the program? And he kind of just like laughed and said yes. And so he and I got enrolled in the hardest class and had no idea what was going on and read the undergrad textbooks to understand what I was trying to learn at the master's level. So now I had to learn undergrad and master's at the same time. And fortunately, things went well. I went to him and I, the semester was up and I said, will you let me into the program? He said, yes. I said, how much is it? And he said, don't worry, we're not going to charge you. So wow, you self-taught yourself super hard economics and then they let you into the master's program. So you have a law degree and in essence, that's why I wanted people to hear this. Like you basically through blood, sweat, and tears, grounded out and got a master's degree in a super hard subject that you hadn't studied because you worked so hard. Anyways, it's just, it's a great, I just, it's, it's amazing. 
Just one point, when the going gets tough, you, you think about the people who've had it tougher and you get through. When my parents came here, I mean, my mom had to retake, um, she um, didn't go to residency here in the United States. She hadn't gone through residency. So she had to uh, retake all her exams. She had to do it in a foreign language. She had to be a mom to us while my dad was working. So I, rem- I don't think she ever slept for a couple of years as she was preparing for these exams. And so I had nothing to compare myself when I'm comparing myself to this woman who's fled this country with two kids is building a life from literally like we didn't have a trust fund. We came here with $3,000 and she's built everything up from scratch. So I don't sleep for a few nights to study economics. That's nothing in comparison to what my parents went through, what, what so many immigrant parents go through for their kids. So it was fun to do it, but people you know, you, you just look to other people who've had it harder and that gives you the motivation to carry on. So you went to the Commerce Department. Fast forward, you had a career as a civil servant in the Commerce Department. You set up the China office 20 years ago. Then you went to law. But I want to get you, I want to move to, you then were asked to go into public service. You left public service. You went to the law firm. You got a phone call saying, would you consider doing public service? And you said, Yes. And so you were named Assistant Secretary for Industry Analysis. Tell me about what is that job and tell us about that and tell us what Section 301 is. So, you know, I, I fundamentally believe that when people are called to serve their country, you do. Nobody works for any particular person. Everybody works for the country. And that's sort of the primary uh, motivator. And so if you are called to serve and you have the expertise, at least the way I was raised, you, you step up and you serve. And just with the, the where the country was and with respect to a uh, turning point with respect to China, um, I think they needed all the China experts they could get. And so I had spent my entire career as an economist, as a lawyer, looking at China from the trade competitiveness angle, the national security angle, the economics angle. So I stepped into this wonderful office. It was called Industry and Analysis at the Commerce Department. It's under the International Trade Administration. And that office covers every sector, manufacturing, services, trade policy, economics to support trade policy. And then it was the government, CFIUS lead, CFIUS being the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, which we'll get to, as you mentioned, Dan. But this was the office where it helped industry become competitive. And while that office was traditionally focused on export promotion, we were at a time in this country where domestic industries needed support. They needed policies, support measures to grow and thrive. And that's what I try to uh, bring to the Commerce Department, that pivot to focus on industry competitiveness. And then certainly when the supply chain hit, that became so much more urgent. But one of the critical aspects of the industry competitiveness is certainly the hollowing out of our industries, right? And one of the wonderful things that we were doing back then was looking at mechanisms to recover from the harms that industries were facing. One big one was IP theft. It's just something that China primarily was engaging in rampant IP theft and misappropriation. It wasn't adhering to its international trade obligations on this matter. And so absent sort of a global order to bring China into compliance and something that China was never going to do, we decided that the only viable way was to engage in self-help And so the United States Trade Representative's Office, under the um, Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, 
which allows for the imposition of import restrictive measures to enforce U.S. rights under trade agreements and to respond to foreign trade practices, primarily those that burden or restrict U.S. commerce. You can bring, USTR can bring import restrictive measures. They conducted an investigation into uh, China's misappropriation of intellectual property and uh, based on its findings determined that IP theft amounted to about $50 billion a year on the lower end and imposed tariff on products from China to recoup the harm borne by U.S. industry to the order of magnitude of $50 billion a year. Contrary to popular belief, this wasn't just to sort of take China down. It was a way to recover the economic harm. I'm really pleased to see that uh, USTR is looking at a new Section 301 investigation into China's industrial subsidies and really just as uncompetitive practices overall. It may take our Section 301 tariffs that currently exist, add a new layer of tariffs on top of that. At least it's what's being contemplated by uh, Ambassador Tai's statements. One way to uh, eliminate or, or mediate some of the adverse impact on industry, which I've been a big advocate of, is shifting the tariff responsibilities on the Chinese exporters rather than the U.S. importer so that the U.S. importer isn't caught facing having to pay for what China is doing in terms of IP theft and uh, uneconomic practices if the new uh, Section 301 investigation goes through. If China is the one that's inflicting harm, China should be the one paying the 301 tariffs. And the Section 301 of the Trade Act is broad enough that it gives us the discretion to impose that responsibility onto the Chinese. I think it's fair to say we're doing this conversation on the 3rd of March, Nazak, and a lot of things are happening very quickly. But I think it's fair to say we are in a period of great power competition where we're going to have a different kind of relationship with China and we're going to have a different kind of relationship with Russia. Could you talk about the kind of tools that we have in this great power competition that are economic? I'm thinking about CFIUS. What is CFIUS? And are there, there, I think there are other things as well. But talk a little. You were on CFIUS. What is it and why is it important? Yeah, so, so CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. It reviews foreign direct investment in the United States to assess national security risks. It's an interagency committee. It's uh, chaired by the Treasury Department. It includes DOD, DOE, state, USTR, Department of Homeland Security, Commerce, certainly. And based on the type of transaction and the equities, different agencies become co-leads and really take the leadership position on reviewing these transactions. So if you have a Chinese company wanting to invest in a U.S. app provider or a semiconductor company or a lithium-ion battery company, et cetera, et cetera, we will review this to determine national security risks. These transactions can either be blocked by the president if the committee recommends that the transaction poses a national security risk so grave that it's not mitigable, right? Or if it's not a national security risk at all, the transaction doesn't pose a national security risk, we can clear that. Or there's a middle of the road approach where if there are national security risks, but we can clear it with a mitigation agreement with the parties, we will proceed on doing that. In 2018, Congress, through the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, expanded the scope of CFIUS. Previously, it was just a foreign investment and a controlling interest in a U.S. entity. 
they expanded this to now not require a controlling interest in certain sectors, including critical technologies, critical infrastructure, transactions that it could expose our personally identifiable information to the foreign acquirer, and then acquisitions in geographically sensitive areas. Think about military bases. The latest statistics um, that talk about the 2020 trends, the largest FDI sources into the United States were Canada, Japan, the UK. China wasn't one of the top ones, but that doesn't, I don't think that this should give us any sigh of uh, relief. We are seeing more and more the the, uh, CFIUS committee call in transactions that were never notified to the committee and the committee can do that. So if a finds that a transaction has closed, that did fall within their jurisdiction and that they do need to take a look at, they can bring it in and then unwind the transaction, which is going to be significant costs to the parties involved. And so even though we're not seeing a lot from China, I wouldn't, you know, rest easy yet. I think what's happening and and we've seen sort of anecdotal evidence of this is that a lot of transactions aren't just being reported. And, you know, there's other ways of text transfer, right, that that you don't have to do an FDI, foreign direct investment, to, to gain that technology. And um, we're reading more and more about hacking. I think yesterday there was a story about a very important chip company. Their records were hacked. And so these threats are big. They're growing. And, and as technology becomes the use and applications of technology uh, get broader. You know, CFIUS is just one tool. But, Dan, you were asking earlier about what are all the tools in our tool chest. Frankly, I don't think we have adequate tools. I think we don't have adequate tools to deal with overcapacity. China's running rampant overcapacity in the optical fiber cable segment. Semiconductors is going to be next. It's going to depress global prices. We've seen cartels pretty much take down U.S. active pharmaceutical ingredients. That's a huge problem. Um, And then you see greenfield uh, investments, right? There's no mechanisms to prevent a greenfield investment happening in the United States to the extent it poses a threat to national security. So we still have a lot of evolving to do. Export controls doesn't capture right now the transfer of just our own personal data, our use data. And so we see all the surveillance activities through drones, et cetera, that people are getting very nervous about. We have no gateway to control this, neither do our allies. So we really do, as a government, as, as a population, as think tanks, all of us really start logging all the threat vectors and really matching it up against the tools and see where do we need better tools because people aren't doing that in the comprehensive way that's really required right now. Okay, I want to talk about trade agreements. I think we've, as a country, kind of been gone back a little bit to the drawing board in the last five, maybe 10 years on trade agreements. I would argue that We've done all of our trade agreements, not only for trade reasons, but for geoeconomic or geopolitical reasons or reasons of grand strategy. I think for a period of time, for a variety of reasons, we've put been more trade agreement hesitant, let me put it that way, over the last 10 years. Given sort of the world that we're in of a more complicated relationship with China and a more confrontational relationship with Russia... What does it mean for the prospects of further trade agreements around the world, including in the Western Hemisphere, in Asia or Europe? You know, I I do think that, um, and that's an excellent question, because I think that there's a lot of maybe, I don't want to say misinformation, but, but the thinking about trade agreements really needs to be rounded out. Fundamentally, I'm in favor of all sorts of agreements with allies, but we've got to really see what we're trying to solve versus what we're trying to gain. So yes. Our trading partners need to reduce their tariffs. We need them to remove their non-tariff barriers. 
But in comparison, our tariffs are already so low. Our The U.S. average bound rate is 3.4%. Our average applied rate, which is really what we apply to the entry of goods, the average is a 1.6%. We don't have many non-tariff barriers. And so in comparison, if we get into these trade agreements, our allies have no incentive to get into these agreements with us because they have so much to lose in terms of their tariff reduction, elimination of their non-tariff barriers, and they already have open access to the United States. So if the trade agreement route isn't working for our allies, because really they have not much to gain, we have more to gain than they do, and it doesn't seem like something that they're interested in, we need to think about more of these sort of collective arrangements with them where we can commit to integrating certain supply chains with them, right? We've got vast mineral resources in South America, in Latin America, and in the Caribbean. We have talent there. We have industries that we could help build there. And so we need to look at these strategic types of relationships with allies that really gives them some things to gain right now that aren't exactly along the lines of tariff reduction. If a country isn't producing stuff that we're importing, what good is a tariff reduction, right? We need to help them get industries up and running. And so there's there's more creative ways to do this. And uh, then the, the, the other point I think that's really important to raise is that, and we've alluded to this throughout our conversation, that our industries are being eroded, right? And so how do we prevent that? And part of this reason is that our borders have been so open. And so um, while it's fine, we're all in favor of free trade. I think the two fundamental questions are, do we want our countries that are not our allies, countries that we've designated as adversaries, countries that have openly threatened us and our allies, do we want them to have the same access to U.S. markets that our friends and allies do, right? Because that's a problem. The more open our borders are, the more we're inviting them to erode our industries. And then the other question is, for the items that are critical to national security, does it make sense to have these very low tariff rates? Or do we need to invoke some of the provisions that we're able to invoke under our WTO obligations to raise the tariff rates for items that are critical to national security so we can rebuild our industries? And the reason that that's so important is Nobody's going to invest in the United States if they know that China, through its distorted non-market economy, is going to just flood the U.S. market with cheap goods and displace the value of our investments. So if we're going to do those investments, and I'm fully supportive of a really strong industrial policy, we need to make sure that we start erecting a wall against unfair imports because our strategy of using taxpayer money to rebuild from within is never going to be able to be successful if we're allowing trading partners to undermine the value of those investments. So, Nazak, here's the, it strikes me that post-COVID, we're going to get some kind of partial economic divorce from China and maybe post what's happening in Ukraine, we're going to get a, some kind of significant divorce from Russia. It's going to have huge disruptions in all sorts of supply chains. We ought to be using our foreign aid. We ought to be using our trade policy. We ought to be using all sorts of tools to, I think, accelerate those sort of shifts away from Russia, shifts away from China. I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'd welcome your thoughts. I think there's a lot we can do. I think if we're going to move away from Russia and if we're going to move away from China, right, where are we import dependent, especially, I think, with China? Russia 
Europe uh, is very reliant on natural gas and oil. We're not so much as reliant, but our energy resources will be diverted to help our allies in Europe. So we're going to now think about all of the things we're trying to do in this country to build our infrastructure, build our industries at a period of time where our natural resources may be a little bit more depleted. Because if Russia is being taken offline to the rest of the world, the remaining supply now has to be distributed among the allies. So does that frustrate our infrastructure efforts? Absolutely. But in terms of sort of the supply chains and and what we need to do, I think our import dependence on China right now is critical minerals. And we are unable to erect barriers in terms of technology transfer, et cetera, with China because everybody is so worried about access to critical minerals. But remember, when you look at a global map, China is producing the critical minerals we need because of their sort of dirty processing and mining. If we actually look at the reserves around the world, there are a lot of ex-China reserves that we can tap into. We can get into agreements with our allies to make sure that we always have access to mines, even if China owns them, that our allies will continue to give us access to those mines and their territories that China maybe partially owns. The other point is there is no reason why the Western world with the best technology cannot come together and figure out how to do clean processing and mining and extraction. And if we can solve that, imagine what we can do to the economy of not just the United States, but our allies too, our South American, our Central American neighbors, that where they have these rich reserves, lithium reserves, for example, and that China's coming in, extracting and taking back to China to benefit their own industries, to benefit Russia, to benefit their military industrial growth to displace ours. If we're able to sort of crack this nut with technology and share it with our allies, that gives our allies an incredible opportunity to engage in self-help and rebuild their industries and to create this um, trading ecosystem with us that now doesn't make us reliant on an adversary and helps our allies boom their economies in a positive way. Zach, this is amazing. This is such an interesting conversation. Let's let's continue this discussion. I just think you put a lot of really interesting ideas on the table, really important ideas on the table. I so appreciate you taking so much time out of your schedule to be with us today. I really appreciate it. Always great to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm an enormous fan of your work, Dan, and I'm happy to continue the conversations. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 